Listener Production. G'day, it's Rusty here, all set for part two of my podcast with F1 legend and Australian motorsport Hall of Famer Alan Jones. Now, if you've landed on the grid here and not taken part in qualifying for part one, jump back to the library and get into it. From the lessons his dad Stan taught him, making ends meet in the early years of F1 and how tough that was, making it to Formula One and winning the world title, plus Can-Am cars and a whole lot more. We begin part two by talking about his relationship with former F1 supremo Bernie Eccleston and a strategic play to miss a race in South Africa. First of all, I love Bernie. I mean, Bernie gets shit-canned like you wouldn't believe. He has done some wonderful things for Formula One. And Bernie is a man of his word, I can tell you. If Bernie shakes your hands, that is it. Um... What happened was uh, I fronted down to uh, Kyle Army for the South African Grand Prix and when I arrived at the hotel and booked in, the uh, the bloke at the desk said, oh, Mr Eccleston would like to see you in his suite or his penthouse, wherever he stayed. I said, shit, what have I done? <laughs> and uh, so I duly went up there and he said, oh, come in. And the first thing he said when I went in, he said, how do you feel? I said, yeah, fine, why? He said, you don't look very well. <laughs> But this is typical Bernie. He has an unbelievable sense of humour. And I said, no, I feel all right. Why? And then he explained to me uh, what, what was going on, that, that um, this Senator Jenny, what's his name, Jesse Jackson, uh, had threatened Beatrice. And when I used to drive the Beatrice, people had no idea who Beatrice was. I mean, it was the eighth largest company in America. I mean, it's bigger than BHP. It's huge. Anyway... Um, Jackson said that if that car races in Kyle Army, uh, where where I'm pulling every uh, black person out of the workforce. As you can imagine, there was thousands of them. Mm. So then Beatrice shit themselves, of course, and didn't quite know what to do. They didn't want to be seen to be bow-towing to this individual, Mm. um, and they didn't want all their workforce to be pulled out, which would have cost them absolute millions. Mm. So typical Bernie, he's come up with a solution. (laughs) He said... um, well, I guess if the driver gets crook and the car can't race, no one can win. I said, yeah, that sounds, yeah, yeah. He said, um, what are your chances of winning? I said, well, if I start now, it might be all right. Because, uh, I mean, the car was dreadful. And um, he said, well, I'll tell you what, uh, how about we give you first place? No one knew, to this day, no one knows what Formula One, the prize money is. And he said, you can... Wait until everyone goes to the circuit tomorrow, quietly check out, uh, go home and spend a week or two with your family in Australia and then just go back to England. And I thought, that sounds all right to me. I mean, because I definitely... I mean, the car was very uncompetitive. Mm -hmm. So to me, that sounded like a really good deal. So uh, that morning, I waited until everyone went to the circuit and I checked out and um, Qantas being, uh, well, then, hypocrites... They wouldn't fly into South Africa because of the apartheid thing, but they knew damn well that people were flying from Johannesburg up to Harare and then getting on their flight to come home, which is what I did. Mm. So I flew up to Harare, stayed Saturday night there, I think it was, jumped on the plane the following morning and flew home. Mm. And um, and then this the press release was that I'd 
con- contracted this shocking virus <laughs> and, and couldn't couldn't drive. Mm. And and you know, great strategy from a Bernie sense to play the chess pieces in that uh, oh, in that manner. It's just it's he is such a lateral thinker, mm. and like he is just. Someone said you've got to get up very early in the morning to beat Bernie. I said, no, you just don't go to bed. Yeah. You know, it's, he's, he's an operator. Yeah. Um, uh, another question from a fan here, Mark Jones. Um, the best car that you ever drove and, and recollections of it, is that the car we reflected on before? Oh, I'd have to say the 07, FW07B. Um, there's certain cars that you hop into, and a 935 Porsche, believe it or not, was one of them. Mm. You hop into them and you just feel immediately at home. You feel comfortable. The ergonomics are there. Mm. It just feels good, you know? And nine times out of ten, that's that's how it turns out. It's like you very rarely see an ugly car in the winner's circle. Mm. Um, and I just felt at home with the FW07. I could do anything with it. I mean, I felt pretty good in the 06 as well, mm. um, and I probably prefer the 07 simply because it was more more competitive mm. but that was by far and away my favorite car uh, you also drove um in a in a one-off sense the six-wheeler that they made you went you went off and tested it i think four wheels at the back two at the front what did you think of that car i think you'd been to maybe las vegas the weekend before and jumped on a plane and went back over and tested that in europe didn't you yeah i was at las vegas and um i was lucky enough to win that that grand prix and Frank said, oh, I want you to come back and, and drive the six-wheeler at Donington because at that stage I told him that I wanted to knock it on the head. Mm. And uh, I said, oh, Frank, I don't want to go, mate. I just want to go home, you know. It's, uh, and particularly at that ter- t- time of the year, I knew that England would be freezing bloody cold. Mm. He said, oh, come on, come back and have a drive it and see what you think. And I think he was hoping that I'd hop in it and think, oh, this thing's a bit of a tool, you know, mm. blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I did, to be honest, I didn't feel any difference at all. It did, it had, it's not like it had better grip. It's not like it had put its power. It, it, I just didn't feel any different. Mm. The only thing I felt was the bloody motorhome was freezing cold. Uh, I stayed at a motel where I had to put boiling water over the lock of the car so I could unlock it. Mm. And I'm thinking, this is all the reasons I want to go home, you know. Uh, so that's what I did. Had it been different? I mean, let's say some of that extraneous stuff that, that was, you know, wearing you down. But had the car been competitive, might you have been tempted to, to change your mind? Oh, I think so. I mean, like any driver. Mm. If you hopped in the thing and thought, this is going to give me an unfair advantage, yeah. I'm, I'm down for a bit. Yeah. Um, it's like you said at the beginning of this podcast, like, had we have had social media, in one respect, I hated it. Mm. But certainly, if we would have had mobile phones mm. and and cable TV and things like that, um, I probably would have done another couple of years because I know this sounds very stupid, but you'd go back to a hotel, particularly if you were doing testing at Rickard in winter, mm. and you had to stop at 3 o'clock, 2.30, 3 o'clock, because it was getting dark and cold and everything. So you'd go back to the room. I was never a big book reader. So, you know, what do you do? Mm. Um had I been able to put on cable TV or jump on the mobile phone and talk to my mates, mm. um, I'm sure that would have a, given me a bit more encouragement to stay on for another couple of years. Mm. But they're the little things that wear you down. Yeah. Like you've got to go down to the foyer, give the bloke a piece of paper with the phone number that you want to call in Australia, sit on a couch while he tells you to go into booth number three. You know, it's all that... Uh, yeah, mm. that used to get me down. Yep. Was there a, a class of racing? I mean, you mentioned the Porsche there before and so on. Was there a class of racing a couple of fans have asked that you would have liked to have done more of or perhaps tried a, a, that, that you didn't get into? Well, I, tr- I tried IndyCar. That was bloody... I hated that. Um, I like racing the Porsche. I did Le Mans twice yep. in, a, in a Porsche and a, a Toyota. Um, 
Look, I've got to say that my first and only love was Formula One because I was always... They're bred for a purpose. They're designed for a purpose. Everything else is modified. And, um, and whilst I say all that, I like driving the K&M car. Mm. I really enjoyed that because that had a heap of downforce. And the, America's got some great circuits. I mean, Road Atlanta, Laguna Seca. I mean, it's got some fabulous circuits. I look at some of the circuits America's got, and I look at some of the circuits we've got, mm. Winton, uh, you know, some of those circuits, Winton International, <laughs> uh, and they're shocking. You know, they're just dreadful little go-kart tracks in the middle of paddocks. Uh, you know, like Phillip Island's really good. Bathurst is really good, although not suitable, you know, for a powerful open-wheeler. Um, but we have very few really good circuits, whereas America's got a heap of them. And I, I used to love racing there. It's a dangerous game and, you know, there are moments perhaps where you cheat death or, or you, you know, what was the worst crash for you, the one that sort of that sticks in, in your mind? You sound like the managing director's wife at a dinner party. No. <laughs> <laughs> they always used to ask me those questions and depending on how pissed I was or how bloody <laughs> or, or how uh, you know, nasty I wanted to be, I used to say, oh, well, I had my arm ripped off once. <laughs> You know, and you know, you'd but you never worried about the danger. But this is this is clearly what you're talking about here, did you? Ever? No, I didn't really. No, because um, at the beginning of the year, I'd make sure all my insurance was in in order. Mm. I had all the best equipment I could get in terms of clothing and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I made sure that my wife and Christian and everything was all all organised if anything ever happened, and just, about and it, just got on with it. Yeah, mm. I mean that's not to say I didn't sort of get scared or apprehensive on the odd occasion like um you know there was the odd occasion but i'm i never used to get the butterflies all that much every now and again i would and i and i wouldn't even know why mm. um you know you'd be there saying shit what am i doing here um or but but nine times out of ten i, I didn't know i used to just uh, i had stupid little like um uh, what's the word you, you know when you superstitions superstitions yeah. yeah I mean strangely I used to like seeing an ambulance before the race the start of the race really yeah and I used to say stupid things like ambulance <laughs> <laughs> now don't ask me what all that's about okay. and maybe it was just a distraction you know way of and um, you know the red underpants of course and yeah. hopping in from the left hand side of the car um, so there was all that nonsense going on, but um, otherwise, no, not really. Pretty significant sliding doors moment. Am I right in saying you were meant to be on the plane with Graham Hill too when he passed away? You were meant to be going testing and that changed at the last minute maybe or something? Yeah, I was. Um, the They had designed a brand new car and they were going down to Paul Ricard because that's where most people went for testing at that time of the year in England um, because the chances of it being dry, you know, were a lot better than anywhere else. And and they could drive the transporter there. They didn't have to fly anything. Um, yeah, so I was meant to be going down there to drive the new car and um, I was having a party at my place in Highgate in London and I had a phone call from John um, who worked for Marlborough he said, oh, AJ, he said, because uh, you hear all the noise in the background, he said, you're at a party. I said, yeah. He said, oh, mate, Graham Hill's just been killed with Tony Bryce and everybody. And I, he could have knocked me down with a feather mm. uh, because Tony Bryce, brilliant young up-and-coming driver, um, the Australian designer, um, and Graham. I, I mean, I, I flew back from the Nürburgring with Graham <clears throat> and... Um, I'll never forget it because uh, I'd got fifth, which was their best result so far. Mm. And he said, oh, come on, come back with me. 
which I did and completely shitting myself the whole way. Because you say, oh, Graham, there's a 707 just over there. Or oh, thanks for that. Uh, he was just... It's, he, 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 let's just say he didn't... I don't think he paid as much attention to his aviation as he did his motor racing. Okay. Um, and what happened was, you know, it's a common story, you know, that he, where he, they'd parked all their cars where he kept the plane... Mm. And uh, they advised him to go on up to the next... And he said, no, I know, this place like the back of my hand. And he hadn't altered the altimeter to suit the, the different whatever you got to do. Mm-hmm. And literally just flew into the side of the mountain, killed a lot of them. And I, I could very well have easily been on that plane because they rung me up the last minute and said, um, AJ, don't worry about coming down to Rickard. We're gonna, uh, Tony Bryce is going to do it. Sure. I said, yeah, OK. Sure. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, you talked about that fifth place result there a moment ago. That was Nurburgring, and I think you came from like twenty second or twenty first to to get that result, which was which was mighty. You would then go on later on to win at Hockenheim, the German Grand Prix, both classic, legendary tracks. What was it like back in that era to try and you know be fast around those joints? Well, Hockenheim was a lot, obviously a lot easier than Nurburgring. I mean, Hockenheim's a pretty straightforward sort of a circuit. It's bloody quick. Mm. Uh, particularly that east curve, or whatever they used to call it. Um, we yeah. miss that now, I reckon. Yeah, well, we miss a lot of things, don't we? Mm. Putting these silly bloody chicanes everywhere. Um, but the Nurburgring was something else. Mm. I mean, that was just unbelievable. I don't think you could ever, ever know that place intimately. Mm. I don't think you could ever do enough laps. In fact, I went there about a week or four or five days early and hired a BMW. I won't say the hire car company because they might still be after me. And at the where you start the laps, they used to charge five Deutschmark. Yeah. And um, so I, I used to do as many laps as I can just trying to work out, you know, like... Just kept buying tickets all day. Well, I did, yeah. <laughs> and because there's certain landmarks that are famous now, like you come over a blind brow of the hill... And when you see this white chapel, you know that there's a right-hander immediately after it and all that nonsense, you know. So I'd been going around and around and around and at, at, at where you buy your tickets and where you queue up to go onto the circuit, you get all these people that want to come in and ride with you. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was all right. This young bloke kept on asking, can I come? No, no, mate, no. I, and I just didn't really know what I was... T- <laughs> I didn't know where I was going myself. <laughs> anyway, when I thought I'd sufficiently got to know it a little bit, I said, yeah, right, oh, mate, jump in. Come on, we're right. I got about halfway around and shunted it into the armco. <laughs> and um, glass was breaking and shit was flying everywhere. He was screaming, never to be seen again. He jumped out and disappeared like a like a rabbit. Um, and then I had to wait then. I didn't quite know what to do. So James was doing the same thing and Donahue was doing the same thing. And so... Um, James Hunt, Mark yeah, Donahue. Yeah, yeah, I flagged them down and said, Jesus, mate, like, what am I going to do here? But there was a break in, in the Armco because it's such a long circuit that they put a break so you can drag the car off the circuit. And where that happens is like little huts where the marshals can either stay overnight or have their get lunch or whatever. So we decided to wait until evening, dark, and then we, well, we, we got the car off the track. And then we decided to wait till evening. And then they came around. I think it was James or somebody towed, towed me or I drove it. It was crabbing. Like oh, yeah, no. oh yeah, and no, that was rooted, <laughs> and um, drove it drove it out of the circuit onto the road. Got about twenty five k's up the road. Oh, he appears to have had an accident. Well, no bloody deer. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> bloody deer jumped out on me, and um, so James drove me back to the hotel, and uh, I rang up and said, "Oh, look, you know, shocking, one of your wildlife." Yeah. And they said, "Well, 
is the deer hurt? And I said, no, very fortunate. I was able to swerve and miss him. <laughs> anyway, the car was completely murdered. Anyway, they gave me a, a, like a replacement one, which I thought was damn decent of them. Yep. But no, that was a funny day overall. Best form of defence is attack, don't they say? Um, uh, one here from... Uh, what have we got here? Sorry, this is a couple of questions from listeners. Lucas McKentry says, the three quickest f1 drivers that you that you raced against did you ever think about that stuff or was it always just about you and trying to be the fastest and, and not think about the opposition yes well, that's true i did i mean uh, if i saw somebody in front of me like if you saw a ferrari you'd think oh well it's either villeneuve or it's a Schechter or somebody you wouldn't dwell on that fact mm. i mean to me they were just a thing to be passed mm. an object mm. you know, there's a car and i had to get past it um Obviously, you put it in your mind. I mean, they call it telemetry now. We had telemetry in our helmets. Mm. Um, you'd say, well, okay, there's whatever. He's hard to pass. Mm. I mean, Villeneuve, when you pass Villeneuve, you weren't it. He would never give you room. You could tell straight away helmet colour. You knew who it was. And Absolutely. And, uh, you'd, you'd, you know, you'd think, oh, here we go. We're going to rub wheels or something here because he's just not going to give way. Because with all due respect, I loved him. Mm. And he was unbelievable, but he was never, ever going to die in bed. I was ill, I tell you. Mm. Um you know, when you look back and see the amount of shunts that he's had, mm. or had. Mm. Um, and he used to do some very silly things, you know, like rubbing wheels unnecessarily. I mean, I don't mind rubbing wheels. I mean, mm. I'm all for it. Um, but like at Sandvoort, for instance, when he went off and tore the back left-hand wheel off, the only thing that was hanging on was the brake lining. And he drove it all the way around the circuit back to the paddock like that. Now, of course... Only at, well, most of the Italians and a lot of people think, oh, Gilles, yeah, fantastic, you know, you know what a what a hero and blah blah. I reckon he was just. I told him, I said, you're a bloody idiot, mate. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, I could have been coming up behind you. That brake line could have snapped, and that wheel could have come back and hit me and killed me. Mm. So I just think you're a dick. Um, but Gilles, you know, he just rubby shoulders, shrug his shoulders, <laughs> off he'd go, mm. which is fine because in those days we all made our own arrangements, you know, like even to the extent where it has been known for other people to do brake testing. If they got a bit dirty with somebody, if they thought somebody had done something wrong, they'd give them a bit of brake test. Because mm. we had a certain thing about being old enough to look after yourself mm. uh, and not be body coddled by FIA and bloody managers and makeup artists and Christ knows what. So, um, yeah, but yeah, Gilles was a hard man to pass. Um, Ronnie Peterson was a quick, quick driver. Uh, Andretti actually was a very under, well he wasn't underrated he was one of the, I, I, Mario Andretti is probably one of the true legends of motorsport I mean that guy can drive anything mm. you know NASCAR mm. sports car you name it Mario not only could he drive it he was super competitive yeah um, and I feel very fortunate to have raced against a lot of those sort of guys Let's see how my pronunciation is for some of these F1 greats. Jacques Villeneuve. French-Canadian isn't my strong suit. Sorry, Jacques. Michael Schumacher. Pretty good. Lewis Hamilton. Easy peasy. Ayrton Senna. My personal favourite, but let's try that again. Ayrton. There we go. A couple of, to finish here, in, um, maybe in the, in the touring car landscape, if you don't mind, Mark Osler, a broadcast colleague of mine who you would have known from the, the Channel 7 days, he told me this great story about you taking him on a hot lap of Bathurst in the Sierra. And he reckons you came out of the pit lane, you looked across at him, and you stuck it in fourth. 
and the car laboured and then all of a sudden the turbo came to life and he said the thing was unbelievable. What were those Sierras like back in the day? They were shocking little things. I mean, <laughs> they were, they were under-tired. Yep. Um, they had nothing of 600 horsepower. Mm. Uh, and as Mark told you, you know, you'd, you'd put your foot down, there'd be about a nine-hour lag. <laughs> um, so they were just nasty things to drive. And anyone who says they were fun or they were good mm. is a masochist. Mm. But having said that, there was nothing else around that could beat them because they were that bloody quick. Um, but I, I remember I put it on the front row of the grid. At Tony Longhurst and myself did exactly the same times to get on the front row of the grid. But Frank Gardner didn't like the fact that I was on the front row of the grid with the person that he was actually working for. So we, we found a mechanical problem with my car not long before the pit lane opened. So. I had to wait in the pit lane until they fixed the mechanical problem and then had to take up my spot on the rear of the grid. Oh, uh, Frank was good, I tell you. Um, so, but, yeah, they were they were a challenging little thing. The very first time I ever drove one uh, was at a circuit that I never particularly liked, just outside of Sydney, a little amphitheatre covered... Uh, Amaru Park? Amaru Park. Park. Mm. Go-kart track. And, anyway, I whacked it on pole. But, of course... Um, I wasn't quite used to the fact that the bloody tyres would wear out in about 0.3 of a second because they had that much bloody horsepower that they'd wheel spin and carry on and, and they were under-tired anyway. But, um, no, they were a challenge. Yeah. Um, how do you frame the, the Bathurst chapter? You reflected on it being you know, such a legendary circuit before and great place to drive. It would have been nice to have ticked that one, wouldn't it? It would, as Gracie keeps on telling me, open wheelers are for sheilers. Uh, <laughs> and you, you might have won the world championship, mate, but you haven't won Bathurst. <laughs> uh, my only claim to fame is I got second yep. and I won the 12 hour. Yep. But I haven't won the big one, see? Mm. So, you know, you're nothing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, but I mean, I like Bathurst. I mean, uh, I, I won't pretend I look forward going there because I don't think anyone would like to. G- you wouldn't voluntarily go to Bathurst. Uh, it's like I went to Malala one year to test the Falcon and I went into the local shop at the village and she said, you're Alan Jones? I said, yeah. She said, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I just come here for my holidays. I come here annually bring the kids with the caravan. She said, oh, really? What do you like about it? <laughs> I mean, hello. You know I mean? So you can have fun sometimes. <laughs> I love your sense of humour, mate. It's never left you, which is great. You worked... You and I actually got to work together very briefly at Channel 9. We did a, we did a race at Eastern Creek, the, the motorcycle GP there, and we called the support races. Great chapter for you there with the late Daryl Eastlake and Baz, who's now gone as well, and, and it really helped Formula 1 go next level in terms of its exposure to this country, didn't it? Well, you know, Barry and Daz, I mean, they were bloody characters. You know, I mean, Daz was a bloody dag. Mm. Barry, well, what do you say about Barry? I mean, I used to fly back after a broadcast with Barry on the Monday morning, and um, in the end, I used to invent stories about why I couldn't share a car with him, because he'd hop straight back in the cab Mm. and light up one of those rotten goulwars that he used to smoke. (laughs) And, of course, smoking a gulwai wasn't enough for Barry. He had to go and buy one with filters because they were stronger than the non-filtered ones. <laughs> then he'd bite the filter off and spit it out the window and light her up. Mm. Well, of course, the cab driver would blow up. Yeah. 
You know, and Barry's, oh, mate, you sure, you know, don't worry, mate, I've got the window down. So, Barry, for crying, do we, why do we have to go through this every bloody trip? You know, like, I'm a nervous wreck by the time I get home. So, in the end, I used to say, Mum, I can't, I've got something in Tweed Heads, so I've got to go <laughs> pick up a step over toehold somewhere or whatever. You know, just just pay my own way home rather than put up with the crap. Right, yeah. But no, he was a unbelievable character. And of course, Daz, well, I mean, he'd, uh, well, he has, he'd make a snail race, you know, sound exciting. exciting. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know if you know this story, but before I started working in the media, I won a little competition on radio to go for a hot lap with someone. You were driving for Glenn Seaton at the time. So my first ever ride in any V8 supercar was with you. No. Yeah, it was. True story. And I walked into the garage at Eastern Creek and uh, there was a very nervous lady who was also a competition winner and a gentleman who was probably a little on the larger side. And you looked at the three of us and you pointed straight at me and you said, you're first. And I went... Okay. Because you were thin. I was thin. Yeah. <laughs> we- I taking fat people for rides. <laughs> really, even when I'm doing hot laps for the car company that I used to represent, yeah. which I won't mention their name because I don't represent them anymore, yeah. um, you know, you'd, I used to like the little Japanese girls because you wouldn't even know they're in the car. But you'd get some fat bloke in the car and it really would upset the balance. It would make it understeer or do something. So Sorry, I just... No, no, but the, the, the conclusion to the story is we're trundling down pit lane. It's my first sort of eye-opening moment of, you know, the rattle and, and noise of a, of a supercar. And you looked across at me and you sort of shouted over the noise and you said, right, we're on old tyres and they're cold and you're the first one of the day. And you just gassed it out of the pit lane the thing was more or less sideways by the time we got to turn two mate it was awesome and and it was a great a very vivid recollection for me of um the kind and style of racer you are i mean you just grabbed that thing by the scruff of the neck and hustled it well once again without i don't know how to explain this but um that's why patrick always used to get me to test the car because I'm a big believer, and when you've got the bum in the car, you just give it all all the time. It doesn't matter whether you're testing or racing or whatever. And if you're, if we used to go testing, there's no point driving at eight tenths or anything because when you go back to the race and you drive at ten tenths, it becomes a different animal. So if you get into it and give it heaps all the time, and a racing driver is a bit like a pianist. You know, the only instrument you've got is the piano. So. It's, you don't sit down at the piano and not play it well. Every time you sit down, you, you should be playing it well to practice. Yeah. So every time I put my bum in a car, I always try and... Except sometimes, I must admit, that, you know, if I'm taking punters around on a, on a, on a corporate day, yeah. you, know, you always back off a little bit because that would be rather embarrassing to stick it in <laughs> with, with the CEO or something next to you. Speaking of instruments, there is a guitar in the corner of the room here. I mean, I was staggered when I walked in today. Are you doing a little bit of playing? Oh, it's for effect. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be honest. I'm bloody hopeless. You know, I'm all thumbs. I... uh I'd, I'd love to be able to play it, but I every now and again I pick it up and have a bit of a practice and I get bored and I get angry with myself and throw it away, put it back in the corner. Two to finish, two to finish. One uh, person has asked about, in relation to your V8 chapter, a very memorable weekend at Simmons Plains and you were battling with Scafie and Scafie ran around. I think you battled with Wayne Gardner as well. And it was pretty decent uh, heated conversation between you and Mark in the, in the pit lane. Did time heal that or, or and what was said can you remember what was said at the time when when you had that confrontation the pair of you 
Not really, but I just do remember coming out of the hairpin and um, I was right up his backside and he backed off a little bit. And, of course, going into that back straight from Simmons Plains, you can't afford to back off because you lose your momentum. Uh, so I kept it in and must have run up his ass or done something. I don't know. I don't care. Um, and he, off he went and spun around, uh, to which he took a bit of homebridge too, which that's his entitlement. I don't give a damn. Um, and, of course, with Wayne, it was the left-hander coming out of the left-hander after the straight. Yep. And um, I think he tried to go around the outside of me or something, and I wasn't having anything to do with that. Um, so I just kept my foot in it, and we touched, and he went off. So it was it was a bit of a memorable day. <laughs> Two of them off. <laughs> Final one. And I know in the, the balance of it all, you probably are, are a little... Um, not disappointed, but probably would have done it differently. There is a funny story about you, the Beatrice Lola, the pilot, the plane, and you, you basically had him on standby, good to go, because you know it was you knew it was going to be a pretty ordinary race, didn't you? Well, more than standby, I told him to go and get some sandwiches and, and, and get some fresh and go and get some cold beer. Uh, as I said to you at the beginning of this, I'll give 100% if they give 100%. Mm. And if someone can prove to me that they've done their best and they've given me a 100% car... I will honestly give 100%. Mm. But if I think it's a complete wank and a waste of time, I won't. It's mm. as simple as that. And Beatrice got me to the stage, quite frankly, where I d- just hated I hated the thing. Mm. Um, I mean, the actual chassis wasn't a bad chassis. but You were just light years behind in power terms, weren't you? Well, it was just a joke. I mean, the Americans would say, you know, from Ford, you're going to see American muscle at its best. Yeah, good on you. Um, it wouldn't pull the skin off a rice pudding. And we went to Monza... 15 k's or more slower down the straight than the Ferraris. I went and got uh, Mike, Cos- Mike, um, not Mike Coston, Keith Duckworth. Mm-hmm. I said, Keith, look, look, mate, they're that slow down there. They're passing me like I'm parked. He said, Oh, well, you're you running too much wing. Oh, please. No, Keith, no, I haven't. I'm, oh, geez, I haven't thought of that. So I told him to come up and have a look. Our, our rear wing was almost flat. And the Ferraris look, had looked like a barn door on the back. And they were that much quicker, it was a joke. So anyway, I was sick of all this bullshit. So we flew down to Portugal. I had my own plane at that stage. So um, I just said, listen, I'm sick of this shit. Uh, I'll just see how it goes in practice. But if it's the same old crap, just go and get some beer, get some sandwiches, get her all warmed up. (laughs) And I'm not particularly proud of this, but uh, by the same token, I'd probably do it again. I picked a spot conveniently right behind the, the pits, the paddock, which was a hairpin and a nice big gravel runoff area. So, gee whiz, I locked up my brakes and skidded into the bloody gravel. Couldn't be retrieved. So I had to hop out and go back to the motorhome, get changed and get in the car and go to the airport and go home. And we were back home in time to go to our favourite Chinese restaurant in Chiswick. Yeah. So, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I did that. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, it happens from time to time. I mean, it's not as bad as what Nicky did. I mean, Nicky went to the race of champions at Riverside and they paid us pretty good dough to go there. And Nicky went there on the basis that they paid for his Learjet to be re-instrumentated, um, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and he, he, he got in and I think the first thing he would do, he clutched the thing at about 90,000 revs and blew the shit house out of it and then said, right, instruments are all ready, straighten the Learjet home. <laughs> but, I mean, I love Nicky. I mean, he... We it, miss him, don't we? Oh, mate, he had... They all called him now the professor, or whatever they call him. But uh, Prost is called that. But they used to call Nicky. Uh, anyway, but Nicky loved a beer. He liked the odd cigarette. You know, um, 
he actually, the bloke that used to come and wash his cars, rather than pay him money, Nicky would give him one of his trophies. So that's, you know, he was a really down-to-earth... I, I really loved Nicky. He was a good bloke. It's been great to shoot the breeze with you, mate, and I'm sure there's a gazillion more stories. It's been very kind of you to, to spend oh, this, this time. And um, from everyone, congrats on... Uh, on what you've done and I'm really thrilled mate that A you'll be with Channel 10 this weekend and uh, this coming weekend for the Grand Prix I should say and then and also that you're uh, you're at our home race and we're celebrating the 1980 World Champion because that's the right thing well I might have been able to get a ticket from them who knows had a bit of trouble so far <laughs> Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me Greg Rust Series editor and producer is Ed Gooden. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If you've got a guest suggestion, get in touch with me via social media. The Garage. It's where a journey begins with a tank full of passion fuel stories. Listener.